Thank you, brother, very much. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray for the Lord's help together. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for a new day, and we thank you for new mercies, and we look to you for your special help. We pray that we might not be like the Israelites who heard but didn't really hear. We pray that you would help me to speak faithfully and usefully, that you would help us to hear humbly and properly. We acknowledge, Heavenly Father, that we are weak, but you are strong. We are foolish, but you are wise. We are sinful, but you are merciful. So please help us this morning to receive well your word and then to live it out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if uh, I've told you before the story of um, Tiger Woods and Stevie Wonder meeting in a pub. Have you heard this story before? So uh, Tiger Woods, the golfer, and Stevie Wonder meet in a pub, and Stevie Wonder, the blind musician, says to Tiger Woods, when my drive, golf drive is off, my whole game is off. And Tiger Woods says, what are you talking about? You're blind, you can't play golf. And Stevie Wonder says, of course I can. I get my caddy to wait down the fairway, and he calls to me, and I hit towards him. And when we get to the green, he stands behind the pin, and he calls to me, and I putt towards him, and it's working really well. And I'm actually playing off scratch, which is, if you don't know anything about golf, very good. And Tiger Woods said, that's incredible, we must play a game sometime. And Stevie Wonder says, well, nobody takes me seriously, so I won't play for less than $1,000 a hole. And Tiger Woods thinks for a minute, and he says, let's, let's play the game. And Stevie Wonder says, this is the punchline. You pick a knight. Now, if it isn't too cheesy, can I say how wonderful it would be since you and I will leave this conference and go blindly into the future? Would it not be wonderful if there was a voice that spoke to us and told us the right way to go? Especially when there are so many voices telling us the wrong way to go, and there are so many voices in our head telling us the wrong way to go. But here we have in the Word of God the right way to go, and that's what we're discovering in the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen Moses in the first talk yesterday recap the journey, 1 to 4. We've seen the riches of the covenant in chapters 5 to 11. And today we're going to unpack what I think are the commandments in chapters 12 to 26. Now, it's 15 chapters, and we're not going to look at 15 chapters. But if you were organizing a treaty with people who belong to you, you would have practical details of what to do for those people. And that's what these chapters are, practical details of how to live. Can you imagine people sitting in church and saying to the preacher, look, this is all very interesting, but what am I meant to do? How does this work? Where does the rubber hit the road? How does this affect Monday and not just the singing of Sunday? Now, I think these chapters 12 to 26 unpack the commandments, and I want to tell you why, because not everybody does think this. But in chapter 12, it's all about worshipping God. That seems to me to sound like commandment one. Deuteronomy 13 is about idolatry. That seems to me to sound like 
commandment too. Chapter 14 is about your identity, taking the name of God. Seems to me to sound like commandment three. Chapters 15 to 16 are about feasts, and I think there is a real parallel with Sabbath, commandment four. Chapters 17 to 18 are about authority figures, judges, kings, prophets, priests, which are a little bit like commandment five and the parental figures. And then um, chapters uh, 19 to 21 are about war and fighting, which sounds like commandment six. And then chapters 22 to 24 are about marriage, which sounds to me like commandment seven. And then chapters 25 to 26 cover a range of things to do with stealing and speaking and coveting, which I think sounds like commandments 8, 9, 10. So I personally am persuaded that these chapters are an unpacking of the commandments. You may disagree, and that's fine, but I think they're unpacking. We need to remember that Israel, the nation of Israel, was a nation. They needed laws to do with taxation and government and armies because they were a nation. We also need to remember that Israel was like a church, a church on the march, and therefore they needed commandments to do with sacrifices and priests and um, feasts and that sort of thing. So this teaching in chapters 12 to 26 is very profitable for us, it's very instructive, but some of it may not be binding because we are not Israel. We don't live in a little landlocked area trying to be a nation. And therefore these um, chapters will do us a great deal of good as we study them, but we need to be wise in the way we handle them. So for example, principles of stealing and adultery may still apply to us, but the punishments for people who stole or committed adultery in Israel will not apply to us. There is a kind of a rule of thumb when it comes to the law of God that the law of God contain moral law, civil and ceremonial. And it's a good rule of thumb. It's not a watertight principle, but it's not a bad rule of thumb that there were laws to do with moral, civil and ceremonial. You'll notice in the West today where people are choosing a religion to suit them that there is often not any authority. In other words, what will make me happy? What will make me peaceful? Not what will tell me what to do. People do not want to be told what to do. But the people of Israel and the people under Jesus know that we need to be told what to do. So what I want to do is pick a few seconds, and you'll see in your outline, if you look at your outline, and the talk is called Please Get Practical, that we're going to just look at a couple of examples of how Moses unpacks a commandment. Are you with me this morning? You look tireder than yesterday. Okay, I'm trying to be your friend. Okay, uh, that's lovely. Thank you for that affirmation. So let's um, try and unpack commandment number one, which we largely had read for us just now from chapter 12. Some of you may remember John Chapman, and John Chapman used to tell an illustration which went like this. I go to the morning tea, and a lovely person comes towards me offering me a cup of tea with milk and two sugars. And I say to them, that's very lovely of you, 
I actually like black coffee with no sugar. And the simple illustration is this, that somebody has wanted to please him, but they haven't asked him what would please him. In other words, I'm telling you, Chapo, you'll like white tea with two sugars. And Chapo says, well, that's not exactly what I like. And so it is with so many people treating God. They think, I will treat God like this because that's what God will like. But we need to listen very carefully to what he does like in order to know how to please him. So he says in chapter 12, verse 2, when you get into the promised land, destroy all the traces of idolatry. In other words, I want you to make a fresh start. We talked yesterday about getting the cancer out of the body and getting the drugs out of the house and getting the stranger out of the school playground. Destroying all traces of the past might sound easy, but for many people around the world when they become Christians, it's very difficult. Especially if they've come out of a religion which involved ancestor worship or something like that. And they're suddenly told to get rid of all the traces of the past. And they feel as though this is a betrayal of their past. But it's a big call and that's what God calls them to do. Get rid of all the traces of idolatry. Because God, you see, will not be fitted in. He won't be Play-Doh to be squeezed into the mold that you want. The idols which were in the promised land, we may think of them as being very stupid idols. Why would I bow down to a wooden pole? But actually the idol and the religion behind the idol was often incredibly pleasurable, offering incredible pleasure and incredible success. And so it wasn't as foolish as we think it is. Some of it was very, very tempting. Well, then the Lord says in chapter 12, verse 5, go to the place that I choose and offer the sacrifices, verse 6, that I choose, verse 7, and rejoice. So there is this beautiful, I want you to go where I tell you and I want you to do what I tell you and I really want you to rejoice. This is going to cause your heart to sing. And we keep getting this wrong, don't we? We keep thinking if God tells us what to do, it will not be a happy place. And God is saying to us, no, I understand you. I know what will cause joy. Well, we get the same principles in verses 13 to 19. Now, eventually, of course, when they moved into the promised land, they would eventually go to the site of Jerusalem. But that's not what these verses are talking about. They're not saying when you get to the promised land, go and find the place of Jerusalem. That won't come until well down the track with David. What God is saying is, if I choose a place, that's where you go. And if I choose a sacrifice, that's what you sacrifice. That's what will bring you joy. And if you're a meat lover, you'll see in verse 15 of chapter 12, you can eat as much meat as you like. I don't know what the vegans do with that verse, but there we go. Now, as we think this through as Christian people, the Bible does tell us that we should worship God in the way that he tells us to. And, and, and we meet God in Christ. Remember Jesus said in John 2, I'm the temple. I'm the new temple. You'll meet God by coming to Jesus. You won't meet God without Jesus. And then, of course, we meet 
uh, God because of Jesus. We couldn't come near God if it were not for Jesus. And then, of course, we rejoice because of Jesus. So we meet God in Jesus, we meet God because of Jesus, and we rejoice because of Jesus. And the, the will of God, which is here in um, Deuteronomy chapter 12, is that He would be glorified and we would be joyful. In other words, when you take God, God's Word seriously, it's like chopping with the grain. It's not against the grain, it's with the grain. And slowly but surely, we learn, I think, as Christians, that it's going with the Word of God that brings the joy, and going against the Word of God loses the joy. God knows what He's talking about. I'm not pretending that I've got this. I'm not pretending that I'm a natural follower, a natural obeyer, a natural truster. I'm not. But God is telling us this is the way to go, and slowly but surely we learn it is the way to go. Sin, of course, always assumes that if we could get out of God's will and just get the extras, we'd be truly happy. You know, we say something like this without actually verbalizing it. You know, God, you're very nice and we do want your blessings, but there's so much else that we could have. And so we're like Adam and Eve in the garden. We're basically saying to him, yeah, we appreciate all the trees, but if we had that tree, we would really be happy. And what we discover, of course, is that by stepping out of his will, not only is he not glorified, but we're not truly joyful or faithful. So Jesus taught, didn't he, that we need spirit and we need truth in order to worship God properly. And he did say that he was exclusively the way, the truth, and the life. And dear friends, I want to say again to you, you mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that if you point people to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, you've become narrow any more than if you're on a boat that was sinking and it had three lifeboats and you knew that one of the lifeboats had no holes in it, but the other two had holes in them. And you pushed your friends toward the boat that would save them. You know that you'd be doing the loving thing. If you're in a burning building and all the doors are locked, but one is open and you push your people toward the door that's open, you know you're doing the loving thing. It's not the loving thing to say in the burning building, pick your door, I don't want to be choosy. We point people to the door that opens and once we're persuaded that Christ has risen, we know this is the door people must go to. So that's a little bit of unpacking of chapter 12. Now let's unpack chapter 14 just for a couple of minutes and I'm going to read you the first two verses I want you to imagine you've got this for a Bible study tonight in your home. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 14, 1 to 2. And it says this. And remember, this is the commandment that's got to do with taking on God's identity. Chapter 12, worship, one commandment. Deuteronomy 13, idolatry, two commandment. And now Deuteronomy 14 taking the name of the Lord. It says, chapter 14, verse 1, you're the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you're a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord's chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now just imagine dealing with that in your home group tonight. And you'd say to yourself, well, we've really got a weird, bizarre passage 
It's about being God's people. It's about being God's distinctive people. And you'll see in verses 1 to 2, it says, when it comes to death, don't react like obviously the pagans do. And then in the middle of the chapter, you get all the clean and the unclean food. You know, you can eat the rabbit, but you can't eat the wombat. And it's, it's, again, it's a strange passage. And then at the end, you get a section on tithing. And if you're dealing with this as a Bible study in your home, you'd really have to do some homework and do some thinking about this because your temptation would be to say, let's move somewhere else. What is happening in chapter 14, 1 to 2? It seems as though the pagans, in the face of death, react in a couple of ways um, by cutting themselves and shaving their head. Now, can anybody call out why you might cut yourself when somebody dies? Release of pain? That's an interesting phrase. Yeah, okay, anybody else? The bloodline keeps flowing. Oh, I've never thought of that. <laughs> A scar to remember them, I've never thought of that. <laughs> I'm looking for two answers and I wish I'd answered the question myself. You people are so creative. Weird, but creative. <laughs> Sorry? I've never thought of that. <laughs> Let's stop before we go crazy. Let's come back to the very same guest who's come for the weekend and say, one, it could be just great distress. In the face of death, just terrible distress, cutting self because of the pain, which I think was what people were getting at. Second, <laughs> second, it could well be trying to get the attention of the gods to step in and intervene, either to protect or do something. Can you think of an example? No, I'm not going to ask you any more questions. <laughs> Can you remember in the Old Testament on Mount Carmel, that the prophets of Baal slashed themselves to get Baal to take notice of them. So it's perfectly possible, you see, that the pagans around in the face of death would do something which was either disfigure themselves because of their grief, or they would des do desperate things to get their, their gods to listen to them. Now, of course, you see what God is saying in chapter 14, 1 to 2. You're not to copy the pagans when it comes to death. You're not to assume... First of all, that uh, God is disinterested in what's going on. And you're certainly not to assume that death is completely the end of everything. You're not to despair and you're not to assume the worst. Reason, says God, because you, the people of Israel, you've got a hope. Now, my friends, I want you to ask at this point, where in the Old Testament, no, I'm not asking you out loud, where in the Old Testament would there be a hope before Jesus? And the answer, of course, you'll immediately think is something like Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, I will have a place in your house forever. Or you might think of Psalm 16, treasures at God's right hand after the grave. 
Or you might think of Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and though I die after this flesh has been destroyed, in my flesh I will see God. Or you might think of Isaiah 25 or Isaiah 35 or Daniel chapter 12. All these great texts, shadowy texts in the Old Testament about the future. But here's the problem. All of them come after Deuteronomy. What did the people of Israel know as they stood on the edge of the promised land about the future? They didn't have the Psalms. They didn't have the prophets. What did they have? Now Jesus tells us in the Gospels that when the unbelievers in the future came to him, the Sadducees, and they said this future life is a complete joke, he said to them, knowing they, they were interested in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, he said to them, you should remember that when Moses met God at the burning bush, what did God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham. Not I was, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. In other words, the covenant that God has with his people is forever. That's the hope, you see. It's the covenant. And that's why the people of God should take heart in the face of death that it's not the end, even though they have not got a lot of clues and they certainly don't have the resurrection of Easter to base their hope on. Well, that's the first couple of verses. Therefore, Paul says, don't, sorry, therefore Moses says, don't grieve like a pagan. And if we were to read this two verses using the four T's that I talked about yesterday, we'd look at the text, we'd work out what does it say, We'd think of the context, why does he say it? Probably because of the pagan nations around. We'd then think of how does Christ transform everything? Answer, he has shed light on the, on the future, he's risen. And therefore the message today is that we're not to grieve like the pagans. Is this relevant to us? It is highly relevant. Have you been to a non-Christian funeral lately? It's marked by fiction, all is well. No trouble, no problem. He's up there playing golf at the pub. It's marked by fiction, the non-Christian funeral, and it's marked by memories. And sometimes if it's a tragedy, it's marked by sadness, uncontrollable sadness. And then there'll be balloons. And so a huge emphasis of the non-Christian funeral is just looking back and then anything hopeful is just fantasy land. But the Christian funeral is going to be very different, isn't it? There'll be plenty of tears for the loss, but there'll be massive hope with reason for the future. Based on the resurrection of Jesus, which is history, based on the promises of Jesus, there'll be a backwards and there'll be a forward. So when the time comes for your funeral, if you're a believer, there'll be a looking back and there'll be a looking forward. When the time comes for the non-Christian funeral, there's a looking back and then there's a bizarre something. The Christian funeral has got to work out how do we help people to focus on Christ and not 99% on the person who's died. And these verses in Deuteronomy 14 point the way to this. Did you notice in the Queen's funeral that uh, whatever you make of uh, the Republic or monarchy, did you notice that uh, she probably put
put that funeral together with the Archbishop of Canterbury, that she probably chose hymns that pointed to Christ. She probably chose readings that were utterly helpful. She had no eulogy or tribute to herself. Uh, did she go through the funeral message with the Archbishop of Canterbury? Possibly. But as many people have said, this was the Queen's last legacy to the country and the world. Christ. And that's what we need to do as the Christian thinks about the funeral. Okay, so all of that comes out of two verses in Deuteronomy 14. Now the food laws in chapter 14, 3 to 21, I won't read them, but they are a very amusing passage because it just goes through a whole lot of animals which you can't eat and you can eat. And this is the sort of passage that the secular press like the Sydney Morning Herald loves to take up with believers and say, well, here you are, you're banging on about this morality issue. How come you're still eating? How come you're not eating an owl? And we want to say, well, because we're not Israel and we don't live in the land of Israel and we're not under the ceremonial law of Israel. But what is the purpose of this clean and unclean list? Some people think um, it must be this is the pagan dishes and they're out of bounds for the believers. Some people think this is a hygiene issue and God who knows exactly what's good for you is telling you what animals will make you sick and what animals will make you strong. But neither, neither of those are right. This choice of animals in Deuteronomy 14 is entirely 1,000% because God says what's clean and what's not clean. God says this is in, this is out. This is clean, this is unclean. It's the sovereign decision of God. And therefore the Israelites, every single time they went to the shops, every time they went to the supermarket, they would be thinking clean, unclean. And as they had breakfast together and lunch together and dinner together, they would be thinking clean, unclean. Why? What's important about that? Because they're being reminded again and again, every single day, we are the clean people of God. And we live among the unclean people. That is, we live among the unsaved. And we are the saved people. And therefore, we've got not only cause for great gratitude that God has, Deuteronomy 7, set his love on us, but we've also got a mission because there are so many people who are yet to be brought under the umbrella of the covenant people of God. That's what these unclean and clean foods are all about. It's not a hygiene issue. It's not a pagan dish issue. It's God has decided clean, unclean, the sovereign God. Well, the food laws, of course, have been abolished in Jesus. We know from Mark chapter 7, the food laws don't apply anymore. God's people are not required to keep rules about food. And we're certainly not made clean by what we eat or don't eat. There may be a health factor, but it's not a clean, unclean issue. We are made clean by the cross, the cross of Christ. Well, how do we show our distinctiveness? It's not by going to the supermarket and choosing special foods. We show our distinctiveness by having a new heart which bears new fruit, living new faith to the praise of God. And we don't witness, of course, because we're great. We witness because he is great. The Puritans used to say, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. How thankful we are that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. 
And therefore we go into the work this week, we go into the normal week that's coming, and we say to him, I'm a crooked stick, please draw a straight line somehow with my life. Notice in verse 21 that um, the, the list finishes, don't cook a young goat in a mother's milk. Don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is a verse that has mystified the commentaries, but I have solved it. <laughs> and um, I think it's a proverb. I think it's a proverbial phrase which basically says something like this, don't use what is for life for death. The milk that was meant to make a young goat live is not to be boiled up in order to cook the goat. In other words, don't use what God gives you for life, for, your, for death. Don't mess up the categories of God. Chapter 14, 22 to 29 has to do with the tithe, community gifts, looking after the people of God. Um, and God's people, of course, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, we have no hope of meeting all the global needs of the world. We couldn't possibly meet the needs of the global world. We don't have enough resources, but we have the gospel. And everybody who comes under the umbrella of Christ becomes part of the community. And that's how we show our love, by looking after the people of Christ. So you see Deuteronomy 14 about uh, distinctive, being the people of God, long-term hope, short-term immediate mission, thankfulness, gratitude. It's a fantastic chapter. I hope some of that made sense. I know from mixing around with you and talking about yesterday's second talk in Deuteronomy 5 to 11, it was a little bit of a whirlwind for you. And this is a little bit of a whirlwind. But I hope you might see that under these unpacking chapters is a great deal of practical wisdom. Let's uh, race along just to two more. One is unpacking commandment six, which is Deuteronomy 20. I preached on Deuteronomy 20 in a series at my church and a couple left the church immediately after the sermon and never returned. Because they said, if that's the God you believe in, we do not. Therefore, the chapter needs to be dealt with very carefully because it's about the invasion into the promised land. Chapter 19 talks about safe cities for the manslayer. Chapter 21 talks about the fallout from the war, finding bodies in the ground, what to do with them. Chapter 20 talks about the invasion, the taking of the promised land. Let me just say some things very quickly. You won't be able to get these down, but I'll just say some things very quickly about God's people moving into the promised land. One, God owns the promised land and everybody in it. He is perfectly at liberty to do what he wants with his land and the people. Second, God waited four centuries for the people in the promised land to respond to him. Somebody said, if you want to invasion, invade a country, give it four centuries before you move in. And that's what God did. He waited four centuries. Third, he communicated to the promised land. Do you remember when the spies went in and they met with Rahab? And Rahab said, interestingly, the whole country is trembling because we've heard of what Yahweh did getting out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and how the armies were destroyed. So there was the message of Yahweh across the country. Fourthly, God is just. He is a God who brings judgment and judgment is now coming to the promised land. We who talk about judgment, and by the way, the Bible rejoices in justice from God, 
The only four times in the book of Revelation you get the word hallelujah come after the judgment. Heaven and earth will honor God for the justice, the day of justice. And then, of course, he's merciful. We read in chapter 20, verse 10, that they were still to offer peace to the nearby cities before they were invaded, if they wanted to have peace. And then, of course, he keeps his promises because he told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, and now he's keeping his promises and giving them a land. He is providing for his people, and this um, whole invasion of the promised land is a preview of entering into heaven itself. So... We need to have a backdrop of the justice, the mercy, the power, the wisdom, the goodness, the faithfulness, the mightiness of God as we think about this particular event. And we read in chapter 20 verse 1, first of all, that the people are to be told, God is with you. Okay, you're not doing this on your own. Verse 4, you're going to be victorious. What an amazing thing to say as you go to battle. You know, the chaplains in World War I, World War II, the chaplains that go out to Afghanistan and Iraq, they can't say to the troops, it's all going to be victory. They'll say, let's pray for victory. But here, as they move into the promised land, they were to be told it's going to be a victory. And then verse 5, in case you're newly married, you can go home if you don't want to fight. Uh, Have you planted a vineyard? You can go home. Have you got a new home? You can go home. Are you nervous? You can go home. Well, that thins the troops somewhat, doesn't it? But you see, God is not interested really in numbers. Numbers is not a big issue for him. Chapter 20, verse 10, offer the nearby cities peace, but you're not to offer peace to the cities of the promised land. Their time is up. And the verses in chapter 20 are very confronting because they're going to move in and they're going to take over and they're going to kill the people of the land. Judgment has come. Just remember that when we put our 21st century Western eyes onto the chapter, that we may not be the most discerning people in the universe. And therefore this uh, chapter is telling us things that we need to swallow, not not change and distort. So it's a unique war, it's a once never to be repeated war, it's a preview of judgment and God is honoured. I said yesterday to the little group that gathered um, that uh, the Bible is descriptive about war, not prescriptive. So you don't get in the Bible, go and fight. But you do get descriptive, this is what God ordered in the Old Testament. The Quran, of course, is prescriptive. There should be fighting. And because of the internet, the Quran has come into the consciousness of people around the world much more than ever before. And as that dear man, um, was it Nabil Quraysh, a Muslim who became a Christian who died tragically early, uh, wrote in one of his books that um, ignorant Islam is peaceful Islam informed Islam is militant Islam and therefore it's the spread of the Quran which is stirring up for many people a militancy around the world.
the very end of chapter 20, after the invasion, we're told in verses 19 and 20 that uh, the trees in the land that have fruit are to be left alone. What an interesting thing to say at the end of the chapter. Has God suddenly become green? And the answer, of course, is that he wants the trees to be left alone because the people who are moving in are going to live in the land. God is for the life of his people. He's not interested really in war except in the purposes of judgment. But he wants the people who move into the land to live. And that's why the trees, like Genesis, the trees with fruit, and the trees, Revelation, trees with fruit, are being previewed here in Deuteronomy 20, the trees. So um, here was a victory over evil. Of course, the victory infinitely outweighed by what took place at Calvary on the cross, where Jesus won an infinitely greater victory for infinitely more people for infinitely more time. That little hill with Christ dying was a greater victory and a greater judgment and a greater wisdom and a greater love than what we see in the Deuteronomy 20. Christians, of course, may be involved in war. We know that from Romans 13. But we're especially all involved in the good fight, which is the fight of the gospel. Final last few minutes, let's unpack commandment number seven, which is linked to marriage. And if you were to read Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, 24, some of it will look very confronting. For example, chapter 21, verse 11, after the war, When there's a girl who's been left behind, she's obviously widowed, uh, and the scripture says, if you see a beautiful woman and you want to take her for your wife, you can. And we think, well, that's just dreadful. But you need to remember that this is a post-war situation, and the way God says you're to treat that woman is a thousand times better than the pagans around. The captive says, Moses in Deuteronomy 21 is not to be abused. She's to be respected. You're not to rush at her. You're to give her time for grief. She's to be looked after. She's to be loved. In the teaching on marriage in general, the woman is always to be protected, not dishonored. The man who dishonors a woman in these chapters, and this was revolutionary in that pagan part of the world. The man who dishonors a woman is to be penalized. And if he's fooling around, he's he's to be made to be faithful. And then in chapter 24, you get this chapter about permission for divorce, which came up in the New Testament when people came to Jesus and said, didn't Moses give permission for divorce? And Jesus took them back to the plan of marriage. But the emphasis again in Deuteronomy 24 is protecting the woman. She's not to be kicked around. She's not to be thrown from one home to the next. This teaching was revolutionary, especially in the promised land where the people around would basically just go by power and muscle. And uh, people were treated as property, especially wife and children, but not with the people of God. So we need to read these chapters very carefully. We especially need to appreciate God's care for the weak, um, his love for the widow, his care for the poor in the land of Israel. 
And a lot of this comes up in the book of Ruth, where Ruth is, of course, being wonderfully protected and wonderfully provided for. How do we apply this? We would remind ourselves, wouldn't we, as Christians, that God is very compassionate. Primarily, we see this at the cross, that his desire is for all people, but especially those who are weak and vulnerable. And that although God's people will have failed many times to keep these chapters in in Deuteronomy, and although we will fail many times, we have a Savior who never failed. The Son of God fulfilled the law. Moses preached it. Israel failed it. Christ fulfilled it. Every believer in Jesus is safe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that um, the great character which we see of yourself in these chapters, and we see especially in the Lord Jesus, would not only be a character who we worship, but also that you in your goodness would um, remake us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus more and more as we put our trust in him, our Savior and our King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.